Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked. You're listening to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion and the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Green. How you doing? I'm good. You know, when we were talking about recording today, uh, which is almost at the deadline for the episode to come out, so sorry about that, everybody, but you're still going to get it in January. You know, I was saying how it feels like we just recorded the episode on love, and you were like, it feels like it was a year ago, because you have, of course, been traveling this entire time, having this amazing trip throughout England. Mm. And I've been mostly just kind of sitting here working in a cold, damp <laughs> New England where the sun hasn't come out in three weeks. <laughs> well, it's the same different. here. It's cold, damp England. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a fun trip. I'm ready to come home. I'll be home this Friday. I've been gone for over a month uh, starting Wednesday, but it's been great. But uh, we have some things to talk about today. It's been a while. Uh, this is a bit of a news update, but we're going to kind of get into some speculation on the Blade Runner series. We have a bit of an un- unverified, but it seems somewhat substantial series news update. We do. And, you know, again, just a little disclaimer that we're going to be talking about this news update. It has not been substantiated outside of this one source, which is the Cinemaholic, which appears to be legit. Like, there's no reason to think it's not, but they don't really cite the source that they're getting this news from, and it doesn't seem to be elsewhere online. So, uh, you know, Jamie and I talked about this. We think it's worth discussing and kind of reporting on, but just be aware that this might not be legitimate. That being said, it does track with you know, the idea that this production was pushed back due to the SAG after strike, it, you know, tracks with what production timelines on shows look like. It feels like it sort of must be in some stage of production at this point, if not pre-production. So like this timeline works out. So, you know, if, if this isn't a hundred percent legitimate, at least it's very close to giving us an idea of when this could come out. And of course the news that Cinemaholic reports on is that the filming of this new Blade Runner 2099 prime video series is uh, going to commence in Europe in May. So, uh, you know, you know, as Jamie mentioned, that that would put us at maybe mid-2025 for a release date, depending on how things go. And uh, it, it's one of the first inklings we've had of this thing continuing to move along in quite a while. On our other show, as, as those of you who listen to it know, there's been tons to talk about with this Noah Hawley Alien series, which is coming out kind of in a similar sort of a timetable. Lots to talk about, of course, with Alien Romulus just a few months away. So things are definitely moving again, and this is when we're going to start hearing more about it. And it's nice to feel like Blade Runner is being served by, you know, the strike being over and people getting back to work again as well. Absolutely. And uh, we should probably mention again, because we have spoken about it on the show, the series was originally supposed to film in part or in full, perhaps, in Belfast. And that deal was struck and then rescinded, and Alcon had to pay some money back to the studios. And there's been silence since that news dropped, probably three months ago, at least, during the strikes. So it makes sense that wherever they're filming, it says Europe, I was thinking perhaps Australia, that uh, it's going to take them some time to reset up, find a crew, 
And usually when these announcements are made, even though this is at the moment not uh, verified, it's not through the Hollywood Reporter or Variety, which are more official sources, but usually when this news breaks, things are already way in motion. Um, sets are built, things are happening. So that might be the case this time, but uh, uh, it's exciting. It's going to be really exciting. It's going to be a hell of a year this year for us as a Blade Runner podcast and next year for us as a, I'm sorry, I should say this year for us as an alien podcast and next year for us as a Blade Runner podcast. And just to remind everyone, Blade Runner 2099 is a sequel series to the two initial films. It takes place 50 years uh, away from 2049. So there's a lot there. There's a lot to... a lot of interesting things there. We do had some. We had some early casting notices. I can't remember the name of that one actor, actress, um, but I do remember that Francis McDormand's name was dropped as a potential lead. What was Jodie Comer? Is that her name? The other one. Yeah, but then that was disproven. Um, okay. And it, we, I think the only thing we know about it is that it stars a female detective named Cora. I think that's the only mm. thing that is like concrete. And I think Francis McDormand was just, you know, being discussed as somebody who people would want to see in it. But yes. yeah, Jodie Comer, I remember shot that down pretty quickly. Um, a lot of people were thinking because Ridley's involved and because she was such a standout in The Last Duel that maybe she would come back for this. And I think she's amazing and would love that. But um, yeah, we really know so little about this project mm. still, which is interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. This is the time where, so, you know, if, if we take the Holly series as an ex- as something to compare this to, which I think we can because they're similar, right? They're both high concept shows set in a really beloved sci-fi universe that has not had a television show attached to it yet. So that that's one big thing they have in common with a pretty prestigious showrunner. Of course, Noah Hawley is much more established, but Silk Louise's a star is really rising lately. Um, you know, they're both being produced by sort of, uh, you know, marquee level streaming services with large production budgets. In the case of Noah Hawley, of course, it's, you know, 20th Century Studios via the Hulu Disney route. And for um, 2099, it's, you know, Alcon via Prime Video. Um, and they both also were projects that were, we have spent various times discussing if they're going to happen or not, especially, you know, I mean, don't know Holly series was announced three years ago, I think at this point. And that, that was over three, there was time where we were like, is this a, a thing, you know, and it definitely is like that has huge names attached to it. That's really happening. Blade Runner 2099. Likewise. Now it's been a, at least a couple of years since this was announced and the difference there is since then, there has been really nothing. Like there's been no discussion about this thing at all. And indeed, when I went online today, because we were you know, talking about this Cinemaholic article, and I was hoping to find a way to substantiate it by looking for this news elsewhere, nobody is writing anything about Blade Runner 2099 since you know last year. I, I saw one thing from 2023, and then before that, it was just people writing about it in 2022. So this is a definitely a, uh, you know, it's it's in carbonite somewhat, at least in popular perception right now. Doesn't mean it is, as you said, not happening. It doesn't mean that it's not already in pre-production, if not actual production right now. There could be way much more going on than we know about. But it's just curious that it's so it's so quiet. It tracks with Alcon, however. I mean, yeah, that's true. You were there, as was I, during the run up to twenty forty nine, and there was very little about what was going on very little Alcon is not known for really engaging fans. They're not known for, uh, 
dropping information when they don't need to, uh, either to their benefit or to their detriment. So this is, it, it tracks with them. Um, I don't know. I know going off of Amazon and their behavior with other series like the rings of power and other series, there were, there was a, there was a, a essentially a paper trail, paper trail of media being uh, dropped. Um, they would make statements on social media. They would sort of rope in fan outlets to, to give their comments, to be involved. So we know that Amazon has that capability. I don't know what that's going to look like with 2099. Um, but 2099 is in a precarious spot, in my opinion. I'd like to hear what you think, Patrick. Just in terms of uh, the show that shall not be named, Black Lotus, dropping and really misfiring and really, in some cases, hurting the IP to, to some degree, whereas we have the comics, which have been a hit, which have been fantastic, really exploring the lore, expanding the lore. Uh, it feels authentic to the universe, um, making new strides, new characters, female detectives, all sorts of interesting, um, yeah, just interesting steps that, that, the, that the comics were taking. So... But in terms of like a live action slash animation, they have a, they have a, I don't know, big shoes to fill. But I think we should talk about essentially an elephant in the room, Patrick, as we, as we move to talk about what 2099 might be about. So Soka Louisa was named as the showrunner, perhaps a guest of 2099. Ridley Scott has spoken about her. We know that she wrote an episode of Halo. That's a very controversial show. Um, which I enjoyed, but I enjoyed it as like popcorn affair. I don't think it's like really good. I just enjoyed it. Um, but then she did Shining Girls, which I really loved, but Patrick didn't like. Um, but I think that there's credence there. I think that we should talk about that. Um, but I think it should rightfully make you nervous. And I'm also, even though I like Shining Girls, Blade Runner is an art form to, to write those scripts, to show, not tell, to conjure that ambience to conjure that world that is almost impossible to do and Denis Villeneuve and his crew did it Yeah, and a good reminder of how good Denny is is uh, you know we watched Godzilla minus one minus color in uh, like an XD THX certified cinema uh, two nights ago, and they had the Dune two trailer play in that on that enormous screen. And I, I mean, I, I was again reminded of how much we really lucked out that Denny was the one attached to twenty forty nine to make it. Like I, he just gave us such a work of art that is going to be so hard to you know top. And yeah, we should talk about Silka. And I also just want to say, I think part of what we see with Black Lotus is the challenge of adapting what has always been presented to us in one format, which is a contained film, into a TV series, which has its own set of, and you know this as a writer better than I do, its own set of concerns, right? When you're doing serialized television storytelling, you have to have certain things in place to get people to come back to the next episode. It, you have to have it feel like it's kind of hooking the viewer in certain key ways. Um, 
And you see that even, you know, great television like True Detective season one, great example of this, that feels very much non-television in a lot of ways. It's still, when you watch it again after seeing it a couple of times, you notice it really does play like a television show. There's, you know, cliffhangers and there's mysteries to uncover and it's drawing you in. The thing is with, uh, you know, in, in 2049, there's a central mystery, you know, at the heart of it, which is like, you know, what this date represents and, you know, what happened to the child, right? That mystery is, it keeps us on the edge of our seat for about an hour and a half of the movie. But if it had kept going longer than that, I think it would have started to lose its power somewhat. Like, I think we would have kind of gotten sidetracked by other stuff. Um, with Black Lotus, they also tried to introduce some degree of mystery into it as well. But they had to spin it out over multiple episodes. And I, I really just stopped caring at a certain point. So that worries me a little bit about adapting Blade Runner into a serialized narrative because this, you know, this is going to be a 12 or 14 hour series and that's a long time to sustain anything, let alone a central, you know, mystery element. So I'm just kind of saying that out there is something I'm nervous about. In terms of Silk Louisa, I was personally really happy to see that she only directed that or she only wrote that one episode of Halo. For some reason, I thought she was behind more of it. Um, and you know, we've talked about Halo a bit. I, I'm a huge fan of the games, but primarily not for the story. The story has never interested me. It's just because I've, you know, throughout college and grad school played hundreds of hours of Halo with friends and had so many great memories playing multiplayer Halo games. Um, so I wasn't like attached to the IP when the show came out in any kind of real emotional way, but I was really let down by that show. Um, and I'm glad that she was only behind part of it because that was something, cause that, that, you know, in some ways, there's another study in something similar somewhat to 2099 in that it's a pre-existing sci-fi franchise that's made into a television show. Like, there you know, could have been a cautionary tale there, but it sounds like it wasn't because she really wasn't in charge of it. With Shining Girls, she was. Now, again, I'm calling out the fact that I and Micah, for whatever it's worth, you know, because we watch it together, we have minority opinions on this. Shining Girls has been very well received. Uh, the book is considered a very important recent novel. The show seems to be really en enjoyed by a lot of people. Um, I found it incredibly, for one thing, boring for some reason, which it takes a lot for me to say that with uh, a show that's like got as much going on as I feel like Shining Girls does. But it took us probably four or five tries to get through the first couple of episodes because I just I could not sustain my interest in it for some reason. The other thing is, uh, to to me, the, the writing of the characters fell really flat. Like, it felt like they were there primarily as two-dimensional archetype, archetypes. There's, like, the jaded detective. There's, like, the abusive guy. There's, like, you know, the the, the it just felt, to me, it felt really kind of two-dimensional. And I was not invested in Kirby's narrative at all, so that as that's kind of is coming together more, I, I was sort of, like, tuning tuning out of it a little bit. That being said, that's a personal opinion, you know, and, and I think the show um, seems to have been generally regarded as being a success story. And I think that's really good. That being said, though, like if I'm struggling to get through an episode of this thing, it makes me, you know, worry that what if 2049 or what if 2099 rather feels the way that Shining Girls felt for me. And I'm confronted with characters who are very talky and are kind of explaining a lot of things and arguing about a lot of things. And it's very kind of like back and forth and back and forth, and back and forth. I think... Um, I'll I'll be upset about it, but I don't know. But but you but you love Shining Girls, so why don't you give us some insight into that? I really did, and uh, I, well, first before I talk about Shining Girls, I think it's important to make a note that you and I usually agree pretty much on what we love and what we don't love. Like for instance, there's a new True Detective series out, and 
uh, I've watched two episodes. The first episode, I was like, after the first episode, I was like, this is strange. It just doesn't, something's wrong with this. It didn't, it felt performative. It felt just fake, even though it looked good, beautifully shot um, with um, an amazing cast. And I pinged you saying, hey, have you, what do you think? And you're like, oh, we'll see, we'll see. And then we, I watched episode two, as did you. And then I wrote you back and I was like, this is a terrible show. And um, you were like, unfortunately, I agree with you or whatever words that we used. Um, and Yeah, I think the words I used was I was angry at how at how bad it was. This being, Now, hang yeah. on. Now, the show is not done yet. We don't know where it's going. Like, we, you know, this is only six episodes, though, so we have a pretty good idea of it. We're, so we we're might almost be, halfway through. We are almost halfway through. We might be, like, eating these words soon. Like they could always stick the landing. But I do have to, a, a bone to pick with you giving it credit for being beautifully shot. I think it looks like shit. And I think what's really? so, yeah, what's so crazy to me is they filmed this on location in Iceland, right, which is, like, probably the most cinema, you know, cinema ready landscape on planet earth. And the, all of the previous uh, seasons of true detective, even the second season really fetishized the landscape as its own mm. character. Right. It, and the first season was revolutionary in that regard. So many aerial shots of things. We, we feel so like immersed in the swamp. The, the landscape becomes like a huge part of the story. And in this one, they have the most interesting landscape they've ever had. And we don't even really see it. You know, you're right. Right. You're right. I'm like, you say, so many yeah. wasted opportunities to show us the land and, and, and we don't, and it doesn't feel, it's because that it doesn't feel ominous. We don't, I mean, like it should, it, it should feel so isolated. They're in the middle mm. of nothing in the middle of the yes. night. And all we see are interiors of buildings all the time. I'd I'm agree. Like, I would agree. When it. I say, when I say incredibly shot, it just means the colors are rich. It's just, it's well photographed. That's what yeah, I mean. I agree but with that, to yeah. your point, not, not that this show is a, uh, a show about uh, uh, night country, but we're using it as a jumping off point um, because Patrick and I really agree that the, sh that night country really doesn't work. Um, and we're mostly, we mostly agree on, a, I would say 95% of the things that we watch or, you know, our experience. Um, but we didn't agree when I was watching shining girls, Patrick was like, I don't, this is, I can't do this. Um, and which was a little bit alarming to me, but I felt immersed in shining girls. Now part of it could be shining girls is set in Chicago. And they filmed in Chicago and they had to film some period things in Chicago, like in the seventies and the eighties. And they got things like pitch perfect, right? So maybe the nostalgia is playing in for me a little bit. I don't really know. But by the end of it, I was like, this was great. It's a bit of a supernatural story. I don't want to give anything away from that show. So please watch it. But to your point, Blade Runner isn't something that you can just try your hand at. You can't. Uh, we saw a, an animation studio try their hand at Blade Runner, and they failed miserably. It's not to say that those people aren't talented, that everyone involved in that show wasn't top-level talent. They were. They just missed the mark, as did Alcon with that show. The The story was farmed out. They didn't have someone like Michael Green who did Blue Eye Samurai on Netflix, which shows the capability. Fucking fantastic. Yeah. Oh, yes. God. It shows you what black lotus could have been with the right people imagine the black right. lotus like oh, oh my god can you imagine right? that thing oh yes my god. i can't even imagine it was just it was just absolutely brilliant and honestly i'm nervous post and i've said this before post black lotus i'm nervous about this show because it takes skill it takes finesse it takes someone who understands inherently the material of blade runner but also and we can get into this because you you aptly or rightly said, hey, we should discuss what the story could be for 2099. This is a sequel series. 
what does a sequel series, what's a sequel to 2049? Because in, in large part, 2049 felt like a, like a finale. It felt like the end of Deckard's story, Deckard and Rachel's story. But we have Alcon and, and Amazon saying, uh-uh, not quite. Here is a limited series, which is acting as a sequel to those films. So, of course, my mind, I just go tick, 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 like, what could this be? And I go to my favorite character, Rachel, and I think, could this also revolve around her? We saw in 2049, they brought her back. Could they have brought her back again? Could Sean Young be involved? There was some speculation that Ryan Gosling would make an appearance as a, a different model of K, which I actually don't think would happen. I don't think Ryan Gosling, unless someone like Ridley Scott or someone higher up said, hey, we want you for this, read the script. And he's like, I've read the script. This is amazing. I will come back as a, the same model. Um, but I, I don't know where they could go, honestly. And that Ryan Gosling thing, similar to the Jodie Comer, was also immediately shot down as being, um, you know, just speculation too. Uh, so my thinking on, part of why I propose that we talk a little bit through this is because my thinking has been altered so much like so many things in my life have been altered so much by Godzilla minus one coming out, which is just such a great movie. <laughs> mm. And uh, like I just mentioned, we just saw it again, you know, in black and white. And just, again, the whole, the whole theater was so enraptured by it and people were cheering mm. and crying. It was just, it was such a great, it's such a cathartic, beautiful experience. Mm. And I was thinking how amazing it would be to have, because that 2049 was that too. Like it felt like seeing 2049 to me in, in some ways it was a little less special because that, you know, it's Blade Runner and obviously I, you know, love Blade Runner. But uh, in a different way than I love Godzilla. But I do love Godzilla, and it felt like a real home run for me. Now, minus one is its own continuity. It is its own Godzilla origin story. It's its own story of post-war Japan. It is not beholden to anything else. There's really there are things in it that reference other movies that if you if you know to look for them, you might be able to spot them. But in general, it's, it's pretty much devoid of the Easter egg effect. There's really mm. like nothing in there that is screaming, like, look at me, look at me, I'm a reference. And there's something really refreshing about that. And what I want to kind of unpack about why is because I feel like in the post-MCU world, and I do I do actually mean post, because I think MCU is basically done at this point. I, have to, mm, I think we, we all kind of agreed at the same time. We were kind of like, that was enough. Like we had Endgame, that was an amazing thing. And then everything since then has just felt kind of unnecessary to, to me, but I think to a lot of people, and you see that reflected in box office, right? Oh, for sure. Fell yeah. off a cliff. Yeah, it just fell off a cliff. And not to say the movies aren't good or the shows aren't good, but it's just it's just too much. Like we just we yeah. we we've been there, you know. How many and, times can the world end? How many times can you save the universe? Yeah, the, I mean, how, how many different the stakes can't villains? get? Oh, this villain's up. Yeah. Yeah, you know, how how are you gonna make the stakes in these things? It's just, it just gets it gets ridiculous. And but the the main thing I think is that so many of us in global popular culture put a lot of effort into staying abreast of the entire continuity and canon going on in the MCU because we felt really invested in it leading up to Endgame. So, you know, everybody watched all 27 or however many films there were, you know, people were endlessly talking about it and putting all these, you know, timelines together and really dissecting it. And so what you had was this kind of a, a unique moment where a, a huge portion of the world were incredibly nerdily invested in this one thing and putting effort into it. And, uh, and I think what we see now is everybody's trying to constantly replicate that. So everything has to be not only self-referential, meaning like it has to constantly be referring to other events going on within the intellectual property, but it also, everything has to be in this ironclad timeline. Um, 
You know what I mean? And if it's, mm. I mean, it's not even a question. Like this is something I've never even brought this up before on either of our shows. Like it's, it's always where exactly does this fit in the canon? Like how exactly will this make sure that it doesn't impinge on anything else that anybody's doing? You know, with the Alien series, like exactly how far away from this, you know, from the events of Alien is this? Like exactly how much time are they on Earth? And like, is that going to screw up what's in the novels? Like it's a constant discussion. And likewise for Blade Runner, I mean, just calling it 2049 when that came out, like that, you're putting it in a linear timeline for the first time where everybody is thinking, okay, this is 35 years later, like this is going to, this many things are going to be different, this many things are going to be the same. And now with 2099, they're giving us a 50-year progression on the previous film. And in so doing, all of the speculation that we have had also has been based on this idea that the same things that are happening in 2049 are just, it's just 50 years in the future. So like the same world that they live in, 50 years in the future, the same characters alive or dead, 50 years in the future. Um, you know, detective work is the same thing we see, but 50 years in the future. This, you know, whenever people make, you know, mock conceptual art for 2099, which there have been some of those, which I've really enjoyed, it's just the spinners from 2049, but looking more futuristic, or it's like the mm. world looking a little more devastated. So it's setting us up for this mentality that I think I'm getting tired of, which is that everything has to reinforce this ironclad canon and you can't deviate from it. What felt so liberating to me about Minus One, and I say this as somebody who is really up to date on the Godzilla canon across Toho and Legendary and the different eras of the of the films that have come out, like I, I felt so happy seeing that film and realizing it actually wasn't a prequel. I, I thought it was going to be a prequel to the first movie or something, and it, and it wasn't. It was just its own thing. Uh, and I, 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 I love that. So all of this is to say that I think it would behoove the people making 2099 to take somewhat of a cue from Godzilla and don't necessarily throw everything out and reboot it, but just give us like a different story. Like give us a narrative that doesn't need every, I mean, a great example of this recently is, is in season four of True Detective Night Country. Like when she is talking about Rust Cole and about how like his dad was out there in, in Alaska, I was just rolling my eyes so hard. I was like, the story can't stand on its own two feet without being tied back to season one for some reason. Like, why do we have to do that to everything? Why does why does everything have to refer to itself constantly? Why are we navel gazing together in public? So, uh, that all that is to say that I really hope this is its own narrative, and I I personally want I want nothing to do with Deckard or Rachel or any of the amazing characters that we love, because you know. I'm not saying we can't revisit that, but we are jumping 50 years into the future. And that's a great opportunity to just tell something else. Mm. I personally would love, love if we had an off world narrative. I think that would serve the material better personally. I think uh, I can see, I can see Jamie now complaining because there's a detective walking in a rain soaked LA street. And I, I also agree, agree with you on that. Like that like we get the trope, like we have that in every single form of Blade Runner media. There's a detective walking in a rainy LA um, and we love it, but like it does, it just feels like the same thing over and over again. And if you're going to jump ahead 50 years, like you have to make it feel materially different. It can't just be another noir story set in Los Angeles. Mm. And a great way to do that is to leave Earth and give us an off-world story. And it doesn't mean it has to be like the definitive off-world story about this is where everybody went or this is what happened. But get us away from Earth and give us something like, get, you know, one other planet that is, you know, embroiled in some conflict, you know, that gives us existential things to talk about. But it isn't just the same thing we see over and over and over again. 
I would 100% agree with you. And as much as I would probably love to see hints of LA or a part of LA, well, number one, if they do do that, and despite the fact, and I have said this before, but I just need to uh, clarify this again. I, as much as I love 2049, it was a little bit disappointing that they didn't go to LA for one shot, for one thing, just to kind of bring us back so we so that there's a that there's a location shot in LA of that they used for 2049. So if they do go to back to LA in this series and it's going to be 10 episodes could be between 10 and 12 or 14 hours, who knows between how long these episodes are, go to LA and do some shooting, like really make this believable. But I will say this, this is what I, this is what I really, really hope because there's so many moving parts with Blade Runner. And I think that you're right where, it can be something that's a, its own story. Maybe it needs to be. I don't need them to connect to Rachel as much as I love her. The the part of me that wants them to connect to Rachel is a part of me that wanted to see Ripley again. And that might nece not necessarily serve the story or serve the audience in the long term. Because if that's what you're doing, then why are you doing it? You know, we've seen Rachel. We've seen her again. Do we need to see her again? Um, who knows? That's all speculative. But what I really, 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 really hope that they do is immerse us in a world, convince us this, that this world is real the way 2049 did, the way 2019 does. That's work. Also, everything is shot digitally. Digital cinematography tends to clean up everything. I have a really hard time with the Star Wars shows except for Andor because they're all digitally shot and they 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 feel fake. They feel like maybe the costumes are well made, but everything looks shiny new in a world that is notoriously supposed to be lived in. But that digital cinematography just cleans it right up. So I'm hoping that they really do their their homework, their research to make this world feel dirty, to make the cinematographer to make the cinematography dirty. And I don't mean dirty like the original, just authentic and lived in. So we are immersed in whatever world that they're gonna build. And then of course, when it comes to character, that we are that these characters are believable. That it's not like, for instance, with um Night Country, there's so much exposition in Night Country. So much exposition. They're just this and this and this, and there's so little quiet. There's so little space in that show to tell a story without people talking at us. And I also think it's one of the worst performances Jodie Foster has ever turned in. And I fucking love Jodie Foster. I just watched Nyad with her last night, and she was brilliant in it. She's nominated for Best Supporting Actress for an Academy Award, and she was brilliant. In Night Country, she's just terrible. Um, anyways... But these are my fears I'm bringing to the series because also, most famously, we have Rings of Power. And that show, despite it being Amazon's kind of flagship of, you know, however many million people watched it, only 25% of them finish it. I don't, I, I want, I want 2099 to feel as urgent and as important and as beautifully shot and as immersive as the House of the Dragon, as 20 as Blade Runner 2019 as Blade Runner 2049 and the music uh, part of my issue with Black Lotus amongst many is the music was just this filler sort of ambient music that they didn't really do their homework with. They didn't really make any art with it. They just kind of threw it in there. They didn't really do much with it um, because you had people who really didn't fundamentally understand the material at the end of the day. And so I'm, I am nervous that um, some of the people involved in, Despite lo loving, loving Shining Girls, I'm, I'm nervous that some of the people involved in 2099 don't fundamentally understand the material. Now, we are a fan outlet. 
me and Christian or me and Christian, me and Patrick are super fans. Uh, we love this show like it's our child. Um, we have emotional investment in it, but we're a fan outlet. Fans aren't always right. Uh, you can't always listen to the fans. You can't. You don't really know what the fans are saying from one day to the next. It's a tough thing. Um, we also live in a world where studios are so fucking scared that they pander to fans over and over and over to the detriment of the work that they're doing. So this is a tightrope walk, but I feel like confidently that I can say that I know this material and that I know what works and that I know that subtlety and nuance is really what draws us into Blade Runner. Most famously, you know, and there's of course people who love the original theatrical cut with the narration, which isn't really a lot, but it's there. Uh, I love the final cut because I don't need to be told things. Show me things. Don't tell me things. I hope this series shows me things more than it tells me things. And I hope the music is a character in this film, much like the music in 2019 and 2049 is a character in the film, as were the cities. Again, these are tightrope walks. This is this is not, it's so easy to criticize or give opinions. These things are hard to create. So I hope that they're up to the task. Yeah, and and it's a huge task to be up to, but also it's it's Blade Runner, so like do it. You know, if, if you're gonna get the opportunity to to run a Blade Runner show, like I mean it's it should be one of the great opportunities of your lifetime. Um and again, that's not to say that Soko Louisa and company don't treat it as such. I mean, I I've been assuming she does, but I just uh I really hope so. I, I think, you know, not to go back to true detective unnecessarily, but I think it kind of works a little bit because it is a detective story each season, right? Mm -hmm. It's about uncovering mm -hmm. a mystery. So like it makes some narrative sense too. Season one of True Detective, I think part of why it's so basically universally beloved as one of the great things to come out in the 21st century so far on television, I think is because the mystery there is it, it draws you in so hard for such a long time that you feel almost like pulled into it. And it does that because you basically don't get answers at all. I mean, even when it's over, you still don't really know exactly what's going on. Mm but you're pulled in a direction where it's clear that the writer and in that case it was Nick Pizzolatto knows exactly where he's going. Like it, it doesn't mm. feel like Damon Lindelof where it's just kind of mystery on mystery on mystery because the clues that we're faced, that we're faced with that we're tracking in true detective do gradually start to paint a really cohesive picture. But what's amazing is the picture itself doesn't make sense. Like the picture itself is where the real mystery lies. Mm -hmm. And I love, I love the way that true detective season one just goes in that direction where you, you feel like we're about to kind of figure out what the total corporation is behind it is what's going on. And then you get to Carcosa and it's nothing like you thought it was going to be. And it, mm -hmm. it raises all these other, so that that's how you do it. Right. You, Cause then you get people coming back every episode cause they want to know what's happening and you get people mm -hmm. kind of working with you to figure it out. And then you give them answers that are really mysterious unto themselves. Um, what I love about season one also in, in, uh, you know, opposition to season four is how little they're talking during it. I mean, a lot of the movie, especially talking about the central mysteries that are going on, a lot of mm. the movie is just character work. It's just like Rust and Cole uh, and Hart giving each other, um, you know, crap about things, like just bantering with each other, talking to side characters, you know, following up on a mystery that ended up not actually going anywhere, but because they went there in the first place, they saw something else that was interesting. A lot of it is just this kind of meandering thing that builds this really concrete picture of these are real people in a real place. Like I said, the environment is real and the mystery is real. So the, that to me is how you do a, a detective story. If that's what this ends up being, which I think it is because we know there's a female detective named Cora 
and because Blade Runner narratives typically revolve around that idea of trying to uncover some hidden, you know, truth or trying to find somebody. Um, so to me, like that's a really good template for it. Uh, I've been playing a, a, a game that came out years ago that I've, you know, played years ago and am now revisiting that I think is amazing is called Observer. Now, I've brought this game up on the show before, for sure, because it was one of Rutger Hauer's last projects. He plays the protagonist in it. It's a video game de developed by this Polish studio named Bluber, and uh, it's hugely indebted to Blade Runner. And they're also very open about it, so it never feels like a ripoff, you know? There's, But for Blade Runner fans, it's just like a constant payoff of like, it just feels, it's it's just full of Blade Runner. And the the idea in Observer is it takes place in a you know post cyber apocalyptic Krakow, Poland, where we have become so enmeshed with our machines that the when something goes wrong with the machines, it basically triggers like a, this you know apocalypse. They call it the nanophage, and it's it's a really interesting story. And and because of that people are losing their minds, they're unable to operate. Uh, the the artificial environments and the artificial intelligences that are kind of controlling the world are you know at war with the people that are living in it it's just a really interesting movie and you play a detective who's played by rucker hauer uh, who does an amazing job with this role who uses this thing called the dream eater to plug into people's chips because everybody has these you know these brain chips uh for, as part of their you know internal ai systems and he uses the dream eater which is not linear but it gives you like sensory you kind of enter people's like the, the ways memories actually work, which are very fragmented and very scary and very, you know, uh, traumatic. And you enter these, these traumas to try to uncover what's going on. And as you do that, it, it gradually starts to put together a cohesive picture of this actual kind of straightforward ish detective story. But you don't really know that until hours into this game where you've just been in this very kind of like scary, uh, you know, unsure unsettling environment. So to me, from a technological standpoint, I could see that working great in 2099 to have mm -hmm. a future where, you know, we have been so augmented by the machines that we use uh, that like if something is wrong with the machines, then there's there's almost no way out. And I think that, you know, cyberpunk always gets brought up with Blade Runner because uh, Blade Runner has influenced the genre of cyberpunk so much. But of course, Blade Runner itself isn't a cyberpunk narrative in any real way. Uh, but it could be interesting to have them try to approach that, to have this be a you know very much about dreams. I think so. If we are looking kind of linearly at fifty years out of twenty forty nine, of course, as we talked about before, the environment would be a, a much more devastated place even than it is in twenty forty nine. Like the world would be probably uninhabitable by that point. So if you're not off world, then you're probably underground. And I think mm. it would be really interesting for this to take place underground, you know, and to be take place in, in largely in darkness. And maybe if there are, you know, cyberpunk elements to it, to use dreams as like a language to explore that mysteries are embedded within people's psyches. And we're trying to find the truth of what happened, um, you know, via that. So, yeah, I've just been thinking uh, a lot aesthetically lately about things that I haven't really seen in Blade Runner that it feels like Blade Runner would benefit from. And like an underground mm -hmm. story about cyberpunk futures, I think could be really cool. I would agree with you. I think if it's done well, uh, again, if they can tell the story, uh, I'm I'm for anything, honestly, if they can, if they have people who really fundamentally understand the material. And I'll just reference um, 
Night Country once again, because I think really what I notice is you have people who don't understand the material. They don't even understand how season one was made. But what's also difficult about material like Blade Runner, much like I'm sure it's difficult with True Detective, is how do you live up to season one? How do you do it? You don't. You do another story and you stop referencing it and you do another story. I found season three of of true detective really enjoyable i thought it was really really well made of season three yeah yeah and uh i didn't like season two i didn't even finish it but i didn't think it wasn't well made or well acted i just thought it was all over the place and confusing and it was upsetting and because it was ridiculous so i stopped watching it but it wasn't ridiculous like night country so that being said with 2099 I hope they fundamentally understand this material. They understand that Blade Runner isn't about robots. It's not about it's not about just the aesthetics. It's about everything working together to create a world. The characters informing each other. Um, the world informing the characters. Um, and moving from there and, and not being and knowing your audience. Blade Runner is niche. No matter how hard they're trying to make Blade Runner Star Wars, and they're they've tried. It will never be Star Wars. It will never be Indiana Jones. Blade Runner is its own thing. It's never going to be this multi-billion dollar IP. It just won't. And it shouldn't be. You know, the first film didn't do well in the box office. The second film did better, but it didn't do well. It didn't really make a, a good, uh, didn't make its money back. But it was still a critical and fan success. However, there are fans who don't like it. But largely, 85 to 90% of fandom love it. It was a home run. So, that's what I'm hoping. That's what I'm hoping. Twenty nine will be twenty ninety nine will be. It will be a home run, and it will be made by people who fundamentally understand the world and understand their audience, and aren't busy with doing Easter eggs or references and caught up in things that they shouldn't be caught up in. Again, it's easy to say this. It's a hard thing. This is a hard task. But if you're going to take on Blade Runner, learn. You learn, you listen, and you listen to the fans to some degree, to some degree. And I'm not saying listen to the fans like, oh, what are the fans saying? Let's write this down. But you listen to what people are responding to. You listen to how people's spirits are affected by really good art. And Blade Runner is really good art. So here's hoping. Yeah, and I know we're we're about to wrap, uh, but before we do, I, I also want to just say you were mentioning the music earlier. Uh, Naoki Sato's score for minus one, I, I think, is really mm. an extraordinary piece of music, uh, which I have been today. listening to so much. And I've sent I've sent you a couple tracks, and I've been like, just picture this in twenty ninety nine, like just mm. picture because it's so sophisticated and so unexpected and and so quiet for the most part. And I I would love like you know we, when we watched minus one a second time. <clears throat> I was really paying attention to the music and how it was working in the film because because I had the suspicion that it was carrying a lot of the emotional undercurrent along 
um, more than I think people realize. And it really, it really was. And it was so masterful to, to see the way that it happens, to see how it's articulating all this like inner life that's very complicated that the characters are experiencing and doing it so that there doesn't have to be exposition and there doesn't have to be a lot of kind of rote filmmaking because the characters are allowed to have those small character moments where they're just interacting with each other. And the music is expressing something separate from that underneath it. It's like expressing the actual reality of what's happening that nobody can put their fingers on and nobody can say something about, but it's there and it's present. And, you know, Vangelis' score is that, you know, it, more than probably any other film score in, in history, I think. Uh, for Blade Runner, I think that, like, the reason it's it's iconic, obviously, as we've talked about, you know, innumerable times, has nothing to do with the synth sounds and the CS80 and all the things that people like to think it is. It happens because it's illuminating an incredibly complex inner landscape that these characters are going through. On a television series, when you're doing 10 or 14 hours of TV, it's it's really hard to sustain that the whole time. But the amazing thing is you kind of don't need to. Like, if you can write, you know, two hours of really compelling music and then just use it in, in ways that, like, are really carefully deployed like then that can be more than enough. And instead of having the route that a lot of things end up using, which is like, oh, big action beats and strikes and stingers on everything to like make everybody tune in after the commercial break, like none of that shit. Like give us something that is meditative, that's like coming along with us on the journey and, and bringing the journey to life for us. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah, obviously much more to talk about, but I'm, I'm glad we got to catch up a bit. You know, safe travels coming home. I know it's coming up after an amazing time away and we'll be back mm -hmm. uh, next month with lots more to talk about. Oh, and a special uh, shout out to Holden Wilhoit uh, who just edited their membership from uh, up quite a bit. So thank you for for doing that and, and upping your, uh, your giving. If you want to join Holden and everybody else, great name by the way, uh, go to bladerunner.com slash support or just search for Perfect Organism on uh, Patreon. And yeah, we'd love to, to see you there. Absolutely. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.